Your Royal Highness, may I come in? You may enter, Saud. I called for you to update me on today's schedule. What meetings do I have? At 9 a.m., brunch with the king. At 10 a.m., you have the International Forum of Investors. You're presenting the project for NEOM, the futuristic line city powered by robots and solar energy, Your Highness. At 1 p.m., you're expected in the Chop Chop Square for three beheadings and an arm cutting. And at 2 p.m., you're meeting representatives from the United Nations. Saudi Arabia will be added as a leading country on a human rights panel. Inshallah. At 3 p.m., lunch at the Ritz-Carlton with the other princes, your cousins and uncles, whom you detained there. Just a heads up, as you ordered, there will be some torture, so I've arranged for a change of clothes for your majesty afterwards, just in case you get blood on your thumb. Good thinking. Heads up, indeed. No lashings today. Any journalists abroad we might want to take care of? No, Your Highness. We solved all those issues for now, but you do have the flight to the Maldives $50 million exclusive party you wanted arranged. Jet takes off at 5 p.m. It's going to be a blast. I personally booked the models. Everyone will be STD tested before entry on the property for your safety, Your Highness. And the entertainment will be epic. We have Shakira, Pitbull, J-Lo, lots of artists you love. Normal day at the office. Off we go. Hi, friends. Welcome back to this week's episode. Hello, everybody. Hi, Sandra. What are we talking about in this episode? Well, I'm going to try to put this in a few words, but it's hard. It's almost an impossible task. There is so much crazy and interesting stuff we're planning to go through. We're obviously going to mainly discuss about Mohammed bin Salman, the uncrowned king and the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. He's just 37, but he has a very comprehensive resume. He kidnapped Lebanon's prime minister and had him resign on live TV. He allegedly imprisoned his own mother. He held 200 Saudi princes and prominent businessmen captive in the Ritz-Carlton for a month and coerced them to sign off their money to the state, which is himself. MBS is the state. And he also has an army of flies, tiger squads, we'll explain. Gold cars and a lavish lifestyle that is beyond what we can even imagine. He also has a very dual personality. He's quite modern, but also very medieval and backwards at the same time. I mean, the murder and dismemberment of journalist Jamal Khashoggi is the best known case of his savagery. And then we have the multitude of human rights abuses. But he is also implementing Vision 2030 to modernize Saudi Arabia. He allowed women to drive. He brought back cinemas in the kingdom. He reduced the power of the religious police and of the Wahhabi clerics. He wants green energy cities and to move away from dependency on oil. It's almost like he has a double personality, really. We'll discuss all of that and more. Yeah, this guy seems to be a more exotic version of Putin, except that instead of poisoning his critics and adversaries, he chops them up and brings them back in little pouches from the. <laughs> I mean, do you? How do they get the pouches? I mean, do they? I... Is there like a stack of pouches in every embassy? Put body parts here. <laughs> I think they're generally used for you know sensitive stuff, and all countries use the diplomatic pouches, but not like Saudi Arabia. They're special. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just like with Putin, when he came to power, Western leaders were enthralled by Mohammed bin Salman. He was seen as a reformer, as a young, more open-minded leader. Everyone had high hopes that MBS will be the guy to bring Saudi Arabia in the 21st century. Until they found out his name is the bullet guy, Abu Rasasa in Arabic. Yes, when he was, well, a teenager, basically, MBS wanted a certain piece of land to develop and asked the land registry official to make the deal happen. And when the official refused, as the request wasn't legal, there were rules in place as what lands can be appropriated by people and which couldn't, MBS sent the clerk an envelope with a bullet in it. <laughs> he is another Don Corleone, just like our boy Putin. Yes, that was a very mobster move. It's important to keep in mind that MBS always had a very privileged life and held important positions, even as a very young man. At the time of the bullet incident, his father, Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Saud, was governor of Riyadh. 
MBS is that the current king is the 25th son of King Abdulaziz, the man who unified all Arab tribes and effectively created the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a country in 1932. He consolidated power by marrying a daughter of each tribe leader, about 22 in total, I think, and he had 45 sons and many daughters. We don't know exactly how many daughters he had, as obviously the girls were not given as much importance. But I don't know. These names are quite convoluted. I'm glad we'll stick to just MBS. Well, uh, the names are they're simple, but there's just a lot of them. Uh, so we have Mohammed bin Salman. So uh, that's where the MBS came from. His father is Salman bin Abdul Aziz. And then we have Abdul Aziz bin Saud. So each kid's name has the father included in the name. So bin Laden means son of Laden, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's easy to tell who's related to who, I suppose. Yes, and it's good that the prince has an acronym. It's easier that way. And what matters actually is that MBS will be, unless something massive happens, the first Saudi king that is not a direct son of King Abdulaziz, the founding father of the kingdom. So he's literally representing the new generation and he's also part of it. He's a millennial like me. So he's going to be the youngest king Saudi Arabia ever had. You are going to rub that you are a millennial in my face. I'm just barely Gen <laughs> X. <laughs> but anyways, it's rather surprising that two-thirds of Saudi Arabia is people under 30. So they have a young population. And uh, as people under 30 do, they like their social media. They are Twitter people and Instagram people and Snapchat people but mainly Twitter people. They love the tweets. They love it, folks. Everybody (laughs) is on Twitter. You would think that uh, this kind of social media freedom is not really something you would find in a theocracy, but that's what they got. Yes, and hold your horses, because this is where MBS's army of flies gets to take center stage. This army of flies is basically an online army of hackers and bots, and they literally scan Twitter and all other platforms in Saudi Arabia and everywhere else for content that is critical to the crown prince and to the king. In fact, they've been so effective in harassing people, getting accounts blocked and even getting users arrested in the kingdom that nobody there even dares think to post anything negative about MBS and his policies. And in all fairness, the young people, so the majority of people, like him as they now have more freedom than they ever had before in the country's history. I mean, think about it. They even have a Comic-Con now, cinemas, unrestricted internet, phones, TV, music. The religious police cannot beat people up with a stick anymore for holding hands in public as they used to just years ago. So the Saudis didn't have these things before MBS. That's why they love him. Yes, you know, he kind of gives them the illusion of freedom when, in fact, he has his finger on the pulse of every tweet that goes anywhere. Apparently, the rumor is he even had a mole inside of Twitter who would give him protected info about dissenting accounts and people that were criticizing him, especially people abroad like Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, no, that's actually true. I think Twitter fired that guy. He was a systems engineer, I think, and he's now working in one of MBS's foundations. Of course he is. (laughs) He's very brazen, MBS, very unpredictable. And look, he even had Jeff Bezos's phone hacked in 2018. Uh, The former Amazon boss received a WhatsApp message from the personal account of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. So MBS himself did this from his own phone. And the encrypted message from the number used by Mohammed bin Salman contained a malicious file that infiltrated the phone of the world's richest man at the time. I remember this. It was hilarious to me. What was interesting was not so much that it happened, but the leaked text messages from Bezos and his girlfriend at the time So apparently Jeff Bezos talks to his girlfriend like he talks to one of his HR people at the office. It's like their their sexting was talking about like pitch decks. He's like, I want to grow a uh, a better organization with you. And it's like, what? Who talks like this to the person they are having an affair with? I mean, 
Seriously? Yeah, that's a little unusual, I guess. But maybe that's what rich people do. Corporation people. I don't know. Well, and there is the fact that, I mean, Jeff Bezos is in control of the world's premier cloud service. I mean, yeah. Netflix lives on Amazon's cloud service. And of all people, Jeff Bezos says, huh, weird text messages. Yep. Click it right away. I was going to say that. I mean, the level of security on his devices should be at least it NSA be, level. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it should be, this should not have happened. So this goes to show that there are many vulnerabilities in places there shouldn't be. Well, it also goes to show that whoever's finger is operating the screen is the weakest link at all times. And look, Jeff Bezos and MBS were friendly. They had a good relationship. So if MBS does this to his friends... It's not at all surprising how he treats his perceived enemies. We all know what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, which, by the way, is also pronounced Khashoggi, so I'm not sure I'm going to probably go with either name each time. But what is less known is that he tried to do the same thing to a former Saudi minister of state and senior intelligence official named Saad al-Jabri. MBS sent one of his tiger squads, that's how his hitman teams are called, (laughs) to kill al-Jabri in Canada, where he has been living since 2017. So Algebra told this story to 60 Minutes on CBS. He was warned, don't be in a proximity of any Saudi mission in Canada. Don't go to the consulate. Don't go to the embassy. And he said when he asked why, he was told they dismembered the guy. They killed him. You're next on the top of the list. So Algebra said that he has a series of explosive tapes recorded. And if anything happens to him or his family members, those tapes would make their way to the news outlets. Also, it seems that a CIA official who said that Algebra alone, through the information he provided, has single-handedly saved thousands or perhaps even tens of thousands of American lives. Yeah, I mean, he seems like a good guy and the moderate person, especially for someone who used to hold a position of power in the Saudi government. And by the way, the Canadian officials confirmed the story. I mean, the story with the Tiger Squad sent to kill Al-Jabri. They confirmed that the private plane with half dozen Saudi citizens that raised red flags at the passport checkpoint were not allowed to enter the country at the time. So So he's basically ruling with an iron fist inside Saudi Arabia. But he's not going to refrain from trying to assassinate somebody just because they happen to be outside of the country. Yes, and just like Putin, I think he wants to be seen in a good light on the international stage. He does, you know, but if he isn't, he probably does not care that much because even if he loses on the geopolitical arena, he's winning in his country, just like Putin. The world condemns him, but the Russians love him. His approval ratings are through the roof after he invaded Ukraine. So everything seems fine. We can basically boil this down to the uh, recurring joke in the History of the World movie with Mel Brooks where he says, it's good to be the king. (laughs) And just like Putin, he's got oil a lot And oil means money, and money means power in negotiations, and oil means influence in the West. Exactly. And let's tell our listeners, the reason why we decided to do this episode now is because a gallon of gas is, for the first time in forever, $5, highest it's ever been. And the Biden administration is looking to, quote unquote, reset relations with Saudi Arabia. And I'll be honest, my first reaction was, no, this guy is a cold-blooded murderer, a psychopath, as Saad Al-Jabri, the former Saudi intelligence minister exiled in Canada, called him. We can't be nicey lovey-dovey with this guy. No. Yeah, but things are complicated. And by that, we mean gas is too high and people lose elections when gas is too high. Not just presidents, lots of people. So I'm not one to defend or praise politicians, uh, but oil prices are something that, I mean, look, no president has got control over the gas prices. It's the most exhausting thing to see people bicker about this on social media every day. So relations with foreign countries, particularly powerful and wealthy ones, are a good thing. It's better to talk to people than not talk to people. But um, yeah, gas prices, outrageous. I I mean, I got gas yesterday. I paid $4.89 yesterday afternoon in Texas. So I only know the gas price because I Googled it because uh, I have an electric car. Which well, I would advise nice. everybody else to do because, yes, it, it is nice. It's, it's very nice. 
So, look, if something is the best interest of our country and our people, I say, do it. I'm not happy about it. You know, this guy is a murderer. But let's see what Biden does, what the deal or what the reset will be exactly, you know. So I agree reluctantly, but I do. And it's true, Biden can't do much about the oil prices, but at least he's trying. The thing is, a lot of people think the prices are high because of Putin's war alone. But that was true just for a few weeks at the beginning. Afterwards, the prices remained high because the big oil companies gouged the prices. And as Biden said, for example, Exxon made more money this year than God. And it is true. In fairness, the Democrats tried to pass a bill to stop the price gouging. And guess who voted against it? All Republican senators. And I mean all. All of them. Yes, of course they did. There's a little bit I will add to this. Uh, prior to the George Bush Jr. administration, it was actually not allowed to trade oil futures unless you were an oil company. The idea being that unless you could take delivery of the oil, you had no business trading oil contracts. But that doesn't make people at Morgan Stanley happy now, does it? They want to play in all markets. So that rule was lifted during the George Bush Jr. administration. And I, there was a 60 Minutes episode about that, too, where a guy explained that at any given time, the world's biggest oil company is not Exxon or not Shell. It's Bear Stearns or Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. So, yes, uh, another little benefit of the Bush administration that just keeps on giving. <laughs> There's more to the reset than just oil. It's regional stability, too. Of course, we all know about our extremist factions like ISIS and things like that in that area. Uh, it's a bunch of things that we can have influence on if we talk to the Saudis rather than refusing to have any contact with them. Yes, and one example that comes to mind is the Yemen war, which MBS started. He did so many war crimes there, another similarity to Putin, war crimes. But since the reset talk started, we manage already to have some influence in the sense that there is now a truce we helped negotiate. It's been going on for two months and it has just been extended for another two months. And honestly, in practice, that means thousands of innocent civilian lives saved. So, yeah. There's yes. that. Another little thing. You know who has influence? Yemeni rebels assaulting a hill full of well-fed Saudi soldiers. There was a video of that that landed on the internet a few months back. And yes, little guys with AK-47s against well-fed Saudis with AR-15s that jam when they get dirt in them uh, did not go well for the Saudis. But in any case, back to Mohammed bin Salman. How rich is he exactly? Hard to say. Rich, rich. I mean, just Aramco alone, Aramco is the Saudi Arabian state oil company and the world's biggest oil company, made a profit of $359.2 billion in 2021 alone. Imagine now in 2022 with the war in Ukraine and the oil and gas prices up to the sky. And MBS, besides being crown prince, deputy prime minister and minister of defense, is also the chair and director or, you know, CEO of Aramco. He has been given full control over it in 2015. And Aramco on its own is estimated to be worth about, at the very least, $2 trillion. I've heard estimates at about $7 trillion as well. So nobody really knows for sure, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, and the story of how Saudi Arabia found oil is also uh, a pretty funny story, at least the way the Saudis tell it. They say that they contracted an American company in 1939 to look for water, and instead <laughs> they accidentally found the oil. So there's an interview with a Saudi official, and he's saying, yeah, it's been happening ever since. Every time we you know, dig our toe in the ground looking for a, where we're going to dig a well, there's just oil there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that company is now known as Chevron, actually. But the oil is, you know, just one sector MBS controls. He's the CEO of everything, basically. All economic endeavors. He's the guy in charge, of, ultimately, of everything. All foundations, organizations, forums, everything. It's him. He has absolute power on all levels. And another of his nicknames is obviously Mr. Everything. Well, his rise to power is interesting too, though, isn't it? Very. Another Don Corleone move on MBS's part. I mean, being appointed crown prince at such a young age is unusual in Saudi Arabia. 
According to the royal family succession rule, when the king dies or abdicates, the throne goes to the king's oldest living brother before any of the king's other brothers or members of the next generation are considered. MBS's father, King Salman, had dozens of living brothers when he took power in 2015, let alone the many eligible princes from MBS's own generation. So MBS was not really looking good like he was not in line not by far and if we know anything from game of thrones it's that succession <laughs> battles tend to get messy uh literally messy so king salman's goal was to keep his family's bloodline on the throne for as long as possible as any king and when he took power in 2015 only three of his Sudari brothers were still alive but they were either too old two had passed away within the first two years of salman's reign or they've been sidelined in earlier power struggles. So for the first time, the fight for who was to become the crown prince fell upon grandsons of the original king who created the kingdom. And just three months into his reign, King Salman dismissed his successor apparent, Crown Prince Mukrin, who was already 70 at the time, and gave the crown prince title to his 56-year-old nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef also known as MBN, by the way. <laughs> the move made perfect sense because MBN's father, Prince Nayef, was a magnificent seven prince and he was young enough to secure power for another couple of decades, but this was just a public move. MBS and his dad, they wanted the power for MBS and they plotted a velvet coup, so to speak. So in 2017, apparently just out of the blue, Nayef gave up his claim to the throne to his much younger cousin, MVS, who had just turned 31 at the time. Gave up power is a bit of a euphemism, though. <laughs> yes, what really happened is that MPS, with the king's approval, of course, literally kidnapped and held Nayef prisoner against his will at the palace before a very public transition of power which was orchestrated to seem voluntary. There's a video of Nayef and MBS. It was broadcasted on all TV stations in the Arab world where Nayef tells him he's giving up power to him and MBS kneels in front of him and kisses his hands. Like Neil said earlier, very Don Corleone, a super mobster move. I mean, yeah, I, I really, I got to give it to them. They understand the pomp and the presentation. It's all about the, uh, it's all about the optics. Yes, it's good theatrics, yes. yes. But look, if you guys feel sorry for Nayef, don't, because he tortured and killed one of his men servants. So he's not a good guy either. I don't think any of them are, to be honest. I don't know. Just because there's a bad guy does not mean there's a good guy. Yes, and well, I mean, he's MBS's cousin. So we have a saying in Romanian, it's the splinter doesn't jump far from the tree trunk. You know, so... <laughs> I guess you don't have apples in Romania. Our saying is the apple does not fall far from the tree. No, we do have apples, but I don't know. We like, I guess the splinter is more poetic, I guess. I don't know. I it's don't know. more tragic for sure. And yes. uh, I guess it fits better with this story. So just five months after being appointed crown prince, MBS ordered a sweeping anti-corruption crackdown. What that means translated is he kidnapped about 200 princes <laughs> and prominent Saudi <laughs> businessmen and ministers. Uh, I mean, many of whom are his relatives, you got to remember. And he locked them all up in a gold cage, the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, for about a month. I mean, standards, okay? Say what you will. <laughs> but MBS has standards. Can't torture, exhort, and terrorize your relatives in a sh it's got to be the Ritz-Carlton where a pizza costs $250. By the way, that's actually not a joke. That's how much a pizza costs there. Well, I was not always a broke podcaster. I stayed in the Ritz-Carlton once and I can confirm that it's grossly overpriced. And oh. <laughs> to be honest, not that great. The one I stayed at uh, was very poorly designed. It faced toward the West and it was in a very hot city in the summertime. So the entire hotel was sweltering hot in the afternoon and there was nothing to do except leave. It was not very uh, not very ritzy, so to speak. By all accounts, the Carlton Ritz, the Ritz Carlton in Riyadh is apparently extremely luxurious and probably they have like more modern air conditioning now. I don't know. Hopefully they're better than the one in St. Louis. It's not hard. Yes. And I mean, I can get why a pizza is so expensive. I, I'm pretty sure they have chefs and stuff. I don't remember what I ordered when I stayed at the Ritz room service wise. Whatever it was, it was very American. 
It was like hamburgers and pizzas. So yes, they had that stuff for grossly inflated prices. I don't oh, know. Stop, you're making me hungry. Okay. Sandra has an ice cream addiction, people. <laughs> uh, can you imagine the ice cream they have at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh? It probably has gold flakes or uh, <laughs> maybe they have like, uh, you know, like gold pecans. You know, they, they got to have everything gold. They love the gold. Stop. By the way, I did have a very fancy pumpkin pie with gold flakes on it once. It was like $20 a slice <laughs> in Dallas, also an oil place. So gold and oil, I guess, go hand in hand. <laughs> yes, that fits in Dallas. Dallas is a very overtly flashy city, too, which reminds me. Uh, we got to tell our listeners about this. Guys, we got a premium episode about a fake Saudi prince to go with our real ones. <laughs> this guy used the Al Saud family name and swindled a lot of people while living the high life. And, I mean, we got stuff in there about putting Botox in a camel. He's got gold <laughs> stoning stones. I mean, there's all kinds of ridiculous things in that episode. Yes, and if you guys want to support our podcast and get the premium episodes, please become a patron by clicking on the link in the episode notes or by going to dubiouspod.com and there's a become a patron button there. And the best part is that the sign-up process is easy, like super easy, takes you 10 seconds, not the usual hassle because we don't use Patreon. And you will get not only the premium episodes, you will also get all of our public episodes ad-free. Now, let's get back to our story before everyone leaves, because the Botox camels scare them, so... <laughs> I, I love the Botox camels, the fake <laughs> Saudi too, princes. Be yes. He's better than the real ones? Yeah, there's a competition there, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, yeah. Anyways, among those detained by MBS was... Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who people may recognize from his CNBC appearances. He is the family's billionaire investor, and he has business ties with American companies like Citigroup and Saks Fifth Avenue and Apple and Twitter and Lyft and the Plaza Hotel in New York, uh, Time Warner, Motorola. Uh, well, Motorola's not doing so hot anymore, but you can't win them all, even if you're a Saudi prince. I mean, eBay. So he's he manages the family's investments. And the idea was to keep these rich people hostage until they agreed to basically sign over their fortunes to MBS, or most of their fortunes anyway. And there are reports of torture happening inside the Ritz-Carlton. During the purge, rumor had it that Prince Abdulaziz bin Fad, son of the late King Fad, was killed by a tiger squad while resisting arrest. MBS also ordered the arrest of another son of a former king. On November 4, 2017, Prince Mutaib, not to be confused with Muadib, the bringer of rain to Arrakis, Prince Muatib bin Abdullah, son of the late King Abdullah, was arrested and stripped of all government duties... And that's not all. Check this out. A day later, Prince Mansur bin Mukrin, son of former Crown Prince Mukrin, King Salman's lawful successor, was killed in a helicopter crash near the border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. News reports from the Middle East suggested that the crash was not an accident, but a plotted assassination ordered by MBS himself. And judging by the way this guy operates, I tend to believe this. This is not the first time I've heard of somebody being ordered to get out of a helicopter. <laughs> so, but we'll save the other one for another episode. He made sure that there are no loose ends and no threats to the throne left. He basically consolidated his power as soon as he got it. Yes, by the beginning of 2018, MBS got rid of every potential threat inside the royal family. Since then, he's been in total control of the kingdom. And he sent a very clear message to everyone considering taking that power from him. And yet he's what some of us would call progressive. I mean, he's progressive for Saudi Arabia, if nothing else. Yes, that's the thing. That's why I keep saying that, you know, he's almost like two people in one. On one hand, you have this medieval backwards attitude of taking power by force or murder or both, imprisoning your enemies and anyone who dares to criticize you. And on the other hand, you have all the modernizing he did, all the reforms. The biggest thing he's done that maybe does not get enough credit 
that maybe does not get enough credit is that he literally took a lot of power away from the Wahhabi clerics. Before MBS, the way things always worked since the kingdom was created was, you know, there were two main spheres of power and they were interdependent. On one hand, you had the king and on the other hand, you had the Wahhabi clerics. And they worked together. The clerics gave the king legitimacy and the king gave the clerics the power to enforce religious law. Well, MBS is the first Saudi royal to kind of end this dynamic to an extent, which is a massive, massive thing. It really is. I mean, and this is not only in the Arab countries. That was the same sort of model that the European princes and monarchs had throughout the medieval and renaissance eras as well. It's like the king's right to rule was granted by God. So the king and the church have to be intertwined. But in Saudi Arabia today, the religious police can no longer beat up women with sticks if too much of their hair is showing, for example, or at least not with impunity as they used to. Yes. And look, I'm not defending MBS, but I can't help but think. Could he have done this without being practically dethroned if he hadn't consolidated power like he did and if he hadn't made sure the other princes fell in line? Because there are many factions still in the royal family that hate his reforms, but there's nothing they can do about it as they have been stripped of their power, their influence. Many are prisoners in their own palaces. So what I'm saying is that, yes, he took their money, but on the other hand, everyone was kind of corrupt, and most of the money was indeed the state's money to begin with. And it's entirely possible that if MBS wouldn't have done all these bad things, he might not have been able to implement any reforms and might not have been able to slowly try to bring Saudi Arabia in the 20th century. It's it's still a long way to go to the 21st century, I think. But still, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like a vicious circle here. Yeah. And the Saudi royal family is huge. It's estimated they have over 15,000 members. And I mean, this is a country where religion is the law. And many of these 15,000 people are probably not happy with how MBS is handling things. So the crackdown on the clerics and things like that. But it's still a very religious country, which is why they're so backwards and they still decapitate people for being gay or transgender and for things that any civilized person would consider, you know, insane. So I can see how in order to implement even the most basic reforms, like women driving, for example, MBS had to first ensure that his own power is absolute. Otherwise, his head may have been on the block rather than somebody else. Yes, it is a vicious circle. Like, I mean, he seems to want to move the country towards a more I don't know, democratic, well, that's not the right word by far, but towards a less extremist state of affairs, right? So he seems to want to do that. But to be able to do that, he's doing extreme things himself. And the fact that you have one country where one single man holds all the power is deeply against any concept of freedom and modernization. And also, I mean, look, there is the story of a very brave woman named Lujain Al-Hatul. This is a very interesting story and speaks to MBS's bipolar personality, I think, I mean, MBS is guilty of many human rights abuses, but this is quite a crazy situation. Al Hatul is a women's rights activist and for four years now a political prisoner, uh, as one would expect her to be in a place <laughs> like Saudi Arabia. Lujain has been arrested and released on several occasions for defying the ban on women driving in Saudi Arabia. She was last arrested in May of 2018 with several prominent women's rights activists on the charge of attempting to destabilize the kingdom <laughs> after being effectively kidnapped in the United Arab Emirates. As of 2018, her husband, who is a stand-up comedian uh, named Fahad Al-Buteri, had also been forcefully returned from Jordan to the kingdom and put under arrest as well. MBS really likes kidnapping people, I swear. <laughs> So, look, this is where it gets interesting. MBS himself lifted the ban in 2017, so women were able to drive from that point on. But Lujain was arrested in 2018, so when it was legal for women to drive anyway. Moreover, 
She was judged by Saudi Arabia's terrorism court for her push to allow Saudi women to drive. And she was sentenced to nearly six years in prison. So from what I could gather, the problem was not that she wanted women to be able to drive, as obviously MBS wanted the same thing. I mean, he lifted the ban, right? The problem was that she said women, quote, have a right to drive. She didn't say only the king can grant women the right to drive. That's why the destabilizing the kingdom charge, right? It's insane, but this is what it boils down to. MBS is okay with some freedoms for women, as long as all women understand it's him and only him who can grant that. They have no rights unless he wants them to. I mean, same for men. So it's absolute control. This is what this is. Yes, he understands that the king must be the king. So it's really hard to call him a reformer, especially since Lujain has been tortured in prison, beaten, burned, and they just tried to break her down. It's pretty terrible. And she's just one of many that are political prisoners. And there's not really much anybody can do. Uh, maybe if there's some sort of political reset after this Biden visit, uh, maybe some of these cases of human rights abuses will be reevaluated and maybe these people could be set free. Um, I don't know, hopefully, but you know, the king is still the king. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that as part of the negotiations, the conditions should be that, you know, these people should be freed, the political prisoners, you know, stuff like that. I think that's probably on the list. I mean, I would hope so, because otherwise I will be very upset at the Biden administration. But I think that's one of the things that could be improved, I guess, you know, rather than just not talking to them. I don't know. But Again, I go from maybe there was no other way from him to do all these reforms to he's a psychopath. Like, I'm really oscillating between the two. It's really hard to even try to give him the benefit of the doubt because every time you do, there's one more story that stops you in your tracks, right? Like, as soon as I start to like him a little bit for doing something good, you find out he's done three more bad things. Yes. I think what MBS really wants his subject to think is that MBS is the greatest thing that has ever happened to Saudi Arabia, especially to the women of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, and some of the laws governing segregation, I mean, women were not allowed to mingle with men at public events or even be in attendance. Some of these laws have been relaxed, so now you can see women and men attending sporting events, concerts, and women are finally allowed a voice in public discourse. You can see some women speaking at press conferences, addressing symposiums. But MBS is not stupid. He does not want to alienate the clerics too much. So Saudi Arabia's restrictive guardianship system ensures that men still have ultimate control over most aspects of women's lives. I mean, part legal requirement, part custom, Saudi women are dependent upon their male guardians, whether they are fathers, husbands, brothers, or even sons. And these men have the power to make critical decisions on the woman's behalf for her entire life. So if the husband or son says you can't drive, you don't drive, even though driving is legal. So, so there are two main issues that are most disturbing. Number one, women can't decide who they marry. That's decided by a male guardian. Also, women can't pop up at the airport with their passport and just travel somewhere. Nope. They got to be accompanied by a male guardian in order to be allowed to leave the country. And look, there are still a few countries in the Middle East that retain some elements of the male guardianship system, but nowhere is the guardianship rule as far-reaching and as restrictive in terms of laws and regulations as Saudi Arabia. A report by Human Rights Watch says, and I quote, the Saudi state essentially treats women as permanent legal minors. Saudi Arabia has done very little to end the system, which remains the most significant impediment to women's rights in the country, end quote. Yes, and Women are the most oppressed class of people, but Saudi Arabia is a bit of a black box. Like, we know some things in it, but not everything. Not many journalists go there for obvious reasons, and even fewer dare to report the reality of things they may see. So, as far as we know, the human rights abuses could be worse than what we imagine. You're actually spot on with that one. There is a very good documentary on Netflix. It's called Saudi Arabia Uncovered. Uh, it's all filmed by an activist with a hidden camera at the risk of life and limb, literally. And a few journalists who went there, uh, 
you know, pretending to be attending a conference. And that's how I found out that there is a Chop Chop Square in Riyadh. A Chop Chop Square, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how the foreigners call it. It's a public square actually called Deera or Al Safa Square, Justice Square. And that's where the public executions, usually by beheading, take place. And it's a crime to record the executions, but well, a few have been recorded. And this square is full of drainage grills, so the blood can be washed away easily. And when these journalists stop there on the way to the conference, they film the blood that was still draining. I mean, it's horrific. And look, just three months ago, in March of 2022, 81 people have been executed, which, by the way, exceeds the number of people beheaded in 2021, which was 67. So... MBS is, as we say in Romanian, the same wolf, but with sheep's clothing. Yeah, these medieval executions are a bit insane. And just like in Putin's case, the West is not entirely innocent because, for example, the same week that Ali Namir's death sentence was confirmed as final and no more appeals could be made, Saudi Arabia was made the chair of a United Nations Human Rights Council panel of experts. Yes. I mean, Ali Nimir was 17 when he got arrested for participating in the Arab Spring protests, and he was mostly arrested because of his uncle, who was a prominent critic of the Saudi king and the regime. Ali was released, you know, after international uproar, but he did spend nine, ten years in prison. He was tortured and abused in unimaginable ways. His uncle was beheaded, though. And let's be clear, uh, Ali, for example, was charged with sedition and treason. And the punishment for that is still, in 2022, death and crucifixion. Okay? Crucifixion. Yeah. I mean, speaking of crucifixion, I wonder if these Republicans in the U.S. remember that uh, John the Baptist is buried in Damascus. I mean, these two religions are not that far apart. They got along very well when they were both mad at the Romans. <laughs> but anyways, and I knew Saudi Arabia was a tribal society, but what about the blogger? Remember Raif Badawi? He was sentenced to a thousand lashes in a public square. I mean, this is all very medieval Dark Ages stuff. <laughs> it really is, yes. And also, let's not forget that, you know, besides the crucifixion, which Ali, the young guy, he was lucky enough to not be beheaded and crucified like his uncle was. But like, let's not forget that ISIS, Daesh, you know, and other terrorist organizations have been indirectly funded by the Saudis. And anyway, too much to unpack here, maybe in another episode. But the fact remains, the ideology of ISIS is not different from the ideology that Wahhabi Salafi Islam in Saudi Arabia adheres to. I mean, look, uh, a lot of the manuals that the kids in ISIS and Al-Qaeda schools were learning from are the same manuals, the same books that the Saudi Arabian children learn from in school. And I mean, MBS kind of seems to get this, at least maybe a tad more than his predecessors and his dad. But unless Saudi Arabia deals with this on a more serious level, even if ISIS is wiped off the face of the earth, a new terror group will arise because... As long as the ideology exists, you know, you can't fix it. And this must be said, despite some anemic efforts to reform education and change manuals, the kids there still learn that all Christians must be killed, more specifically beheaded if possible. And not only Christians, even other Muslims, the Shia, the Jewish people, and the non-believers. In a nutshell, the Quran has always been used by those in power in the Middle East to match their view of who they hate, just like the Bible has been used in the rest of the world. I mean... Yes. That's the thing. Yeah. And look, before we get to MBS's next international kidnapping, which is insane, by the way, I just want to clarify that I'm not saying the Quran is bad. I'm saying it's equally bad to the Bible and the Torah. Islam and Christianity are the two biggest Abrahamic religions. They're Judaism too, and they have their fundamentalists as well, the Hasidic Jews and so on. But, you know, people think, to your point earlier with uh, John the Baptist said, people think that Islam and Christianity, for example, are two different things, uh, opposing ends of the spectrum. Nope. They are the exact same thing with very few minor differences, really. It's more of a matter of how people or countries decided to cherry pick from these books, the Quran and Bible, respectively. It's like having the same tree with three branches, the Bible, the Quran, and the Torah. It's the same trunk, right? It's the same principles. It's the same thing, really. And Islam, Judaism, and Christianity say that non-believers and those of other religions should be slaughtered. I yes, mean, I no mean, it's, that's literally it. Sorry to interrupt you, but the only difference between them 
is literally the people. They disagree on who the prophet is. <laughs> Other than who the prophet is. And who it's, should slaughter? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like that's the main thing is if they could agree on who the prophet is, they would only need one book. Yes, exactly. In Luke 19.27, the Bible God says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And in Chronicles 15, 12, 13, the Bible also says, whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. And if you think the practice of stoning women to death for being unfaithful under Sharia law is some crazy Muslim thing, you're wrong. Here's what the Bible says. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I guess my point is, if there is a God and he's good, why urge people to kill other people in any context? And usually very religious people would say, well, that's in the Old Testament, as if it doesn't matter. That's an excuse that, you know, in their eyes stands. That's like saying, well, God said that on Monday, but by Friday he changed his mind. Doesn't matter. The holy books of 99% humans on earth have many, many passages in them inciting to murder of the gays of the trans of those of other religions of those who are not religious and so on and that should make us think was it an alleged loving god who wrote these books or just men and i say men because only a guy could f up things so badly <laughs> i mean ultimately it's a matter of how you cherry pick because a good person will pick the nice parts with love thy neighbor while a hateful group will cherry pick whatever murder passages fit their murderous agenda or oppression and political control agenda they have really i mean i know i keep telling people this but we got to go back to the john milton version the john milton version is fantastic it's like a superhero movie i mean jesus and satan have a fight scene at the end it's cool <laughs> seriously and it's like that was john milton's whole project it's like don't worry i got this i will take all the scriptures and i will fix them so that they all fit together properly no more contradictions <laughs> So seriously, just read his version. It's better anyways. Or maybe we should all stick to the science books because I think that would be, you know, the way forward. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I do have, I, I I do have so. a soft spot for the fight scene between Satan and Jesus. It's very good. <laughs> but in any case, this is why we got to pay attention to this stuff in America, too, because the separation between church and state is not what it was even a couple of months ago. I mean, what did we just do an episode about? Roe versus Wade is going to be outlawed. We are going to free the states to uh, create their theocracy as they see fit. And when you start mixing religion and the law, you are pretty far down that slippery slope. So, I mean, that's what we were talking about. The U.S., in many places, will have stricter abortion laws than the Taliban. So... When women in America start having less rights than Afghani women living under the Taliban, you're on a pretty dangerous path to the same sort of tribal nation idea where every state has their own little theocracy. Yes, yes, like MBS is Saudi Arabia. And by the way, what strikes me as so insane about MBS, he's so brazen. I mean, look, the guy kidnapped Lebanon's prime minister. Can you imagine... <laughs> I mean, that's a crazy story. It's a complicated story, too. So this is all sort of connected to the Iran-Saudi Arabia sort of proxy war. It's kind of like a Cold War in the Middle East. Basically, this is a war for influence in that entire region by the Iranians and the Saudis. And the aid through other countries like Syria and Yemen and Bahrain and Lebanon and Qatar... All these countries have been, in one way or another, used as proxies for either the Iranians or the Saudis. And, I mean, it's a convoluted history that we need a whole other podcast to go through, so I guess we got to stick to our own Cold Wars for now, but anyways. Yes, so let's focus on the incident involving MBS and the Lebanese Prime Minister. So, while on a visit in Saudi Arabia in November 2017, so at about the same time... Uh, as the Ritz-Carlton hostage situation, Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri abruptly announced his resignation on live TV, citing Iran's and Hezbollah's political overextension in the Middle East region and fears of assassination. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair to say that he looked like he was under duress. I mean, 
We're going to link an article in the notes and you guys can watch the video and uh, see what you think. But he looks pretty terrified. Yes. And look, you know, I'm laughing. I know it's not okay to laugh, but it's like, it's such a crazy story. And this is insane. I mean, kidnapping another country's prime minister and making him quit his job on live TV. This is insanity. Crazier than the movies. (laughs) I mean, not even Putin is this brazen. He only uh, kidnaps and tortures other like oligarchs but in any case Saad Hariri is a Saudi citizen too he has a Saudi passport as well as a Lebanese one but the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights clearly stated that Saad had been quote personally interrogated and threatened on that trip and he was coerced into resigning so there's your confirmation (laughs) yeah and it is quite obvious he looked pale and really afraid in that video and the un report issued by the human rights activist agnes kalmar pointed out that a saudi official saud al-katani was quote one of the two officials who were involved in attempting to force saad hariri to resign during his detention in guess where neil where do you think they kept him prisoner I'm guessing in the Ritz. Yes, he was held captive in a quote-unquote private residence on the compound of the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. (laughs) And the report concluded that, quote, Hariri had been the victim of psychological torture and treatment which may amount to cruel, inhumane, and degrading. Oh, and it's important to understand that the Lebanese prime minister had family living in Saudi Arabia, so MBS had a lot of leverage in this quote-unquote negotiation, right? And Middle East I quoted well-informed official sources that said Hariri was verbally humiliated and beaten during the detention. And the resignation was widely rejected in Lebanon as false, of course, and recognized as made under duress, with President Aoun calling Saad Hariri to return back home, and he did return and then recanted the obviously forced resignation. But this is just another example of how MBS operates and the lengths he will go to in order to destabilize the region so that he can gain more influence. It's quite scary, actually. So I don't think this is an entirely coincidence. Lebanon has been traditionally one of the more secular sort of tourist attraction and financial capitals of the Middle East, uh, just because they don't get mixed up in these religious confrontations like the Saudis and the Iranians do. But the Lebanese PM said afterwards that his relationship with MBS, quote, could not be better. (laughs) So I guess he's still terrified. (laughs) And just one year after the kidnapping, MBS joked during a meeting with the Crown Prince of Bahrain and Saad Hariri. I just want to conclude with one thing. Prime Minister Saad is going to be here for two days. So please, no ideas that he's being kidnapped. <laughs> and I think Hariri was laughing, but who knows what he was really thinking when this guy says they're standing right next to him. He was probably screaming on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yes. And the guy who was in charge of the rich threatening and torturing and extorting, Saud al the one whose name we also used in the intro. He was MBS's right-hand man when it comes to coordinating his, quote, tiger squads, (laughs) the hitman squads. He was the one who oversaw the murder of Khashoggi in the Saudi's consulate in Turkey. His official function was advisor to the king and the crown prince. Unofficially, he was an executioner, pretty much. So he was dismissed after Khashoggi's murder and the backlash from the international community over that incident. Yes, MPS didn't think the Khashoggi murder through very well, I would say. And Saudi Arabia as a country, as well as himself, have lost a lot of the goodwill from the West and really suffered consequences in terms of investors pulling out of projects and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and if there's anybody not familiar with the Khashoggi case, he was a... Saudi journalist for Middle East Eye and later for the Washington Post. And I uh, was also an American resident at the time. He started off as a journalist for the Saudi royal family, always supporting whatever they did. And he also supported MBS at the beginning until, well, he didn't. And he was killed and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. He was sent back to the Saudis in pieces, literally, in diplomatic pouches. 
So MBS ordered his murder. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. And I think MBS ever since has been trying to do clean up and rebuild his image. Even the IPO of Saudi Aramco had been put on hold for a while because of the backlash from the Khashoggi murder. And many American tech giants have been, even though much less recently, you know, distancing themselves from Saudi money. MBS almost ran out of tricks to lure foreign investments into the kingdom and repair his reputation as a benign reformer. But with this new oil crisis brought on by Putin, swear things are looking up for MBS again, because look, a visit from a respected U.S. president like Biden would confer legitimacy once again to MBS, would give a green light to investors once more to do business with the Saudis on a large scale and invest in Vision 2030 as well. We'll probably have a lot to discuss about Vision 2030 and a bunch of other Crown Prince facts in another episode. Right now, I just remember the orb, though. We didn't even mention the orb. How can we forget about Trump and uh, <laughs> the king and the orb? Yes, and I mean, as we just referred to a potential Biden visit, Neil is referring now to the Trump visit to Saudi Arabia, which honestly didn't play great for either of them, I think, uh, MBS or Trump. The one thing everyone remembers is that glowing orb. I mean, to this day, I do not know or understand what that glowing orb was or what was its purpose. I mean... Wait, was it MPS or was it his dad in the orb photos? And I mean, whether you think it played well depends on what you think of giant glowing orbs. Personally, I think it was <laughs> it was everything that it could have been. <laughs> Well, I did a Google real fast, and it turns out MBS was not in the glowing orb photo. It was his dad, King Salman, Trump, and Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. They were all touching the orb, looking like supervillains, plotting the end of the world or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out the sinister-looking glowing orb thing was the Earth. I mean, stylized, I guess. It, it looks really weird. Either way, the orb was gifted to U.S. diplomats, and it sat for a while in the U.S. embassy in Riyadh. Not sure where it is now, but the memes that came out after the orb photos with the three dignitaries hit the news and they are insanely funny. One lady photoshopped Saruman from Lord of the Rings into the photo and it wasn't even weird. He fitted perfectly, <laughs> which goes to show just how crazy the whole setup was. Yes, absolutely nuts. And Trump loved it. You can see the look on his face like, I love the orb. We love it, don't we, folks? I mean... It's just very surreal. I mean, no more surreal than Trump taking MBS aside and defending him after he murdered Khashoggi, though. Asked if he thinks that MBS gave the hit order, Trump said something like, we stand by our friend, Mohammed bin Salman, that's all. Have a nice weekend. And, you know, I think, actually, if I had to guess... I think Trump is really jealous that he can't just order the murder of journalists like MBS can. Yes, actually, that's <laughs> a very good point. And look, I'm not surprised that he defended MBS. You know, like totalitarian types of people like to, you know, they stick together, right? They're buddies. But anyway, you know what I noticed about our uh, villains, about Putin, MBS, Trump? They all love golden things like gold. <laughs> Things made of gold, like gold toilets, glittery, sparkly stuff in general, but especially gold. I mean, I wish we had more time to discuss the gold cars. MBS has such an extensive collection. I mean, plus the palaces, yachts, his private life, the lavish parties. I have about 300 things going through my head now all about MBS, and we might just have to do another episode soon because it's too much to squeeze into this one. You know what we got to do? We got to get ToiletGuru.com to talk to us about gold toilets. I mean, we are that's not a... sponsored by Toilet Guru, guys. We are not. So, <laughs> seriously, guys, if you missed that episode, ToiletGuru.com is seriously good content. It's... But, okay. <laughs> anyways, not a bad idea. Another episode. You know what? Let's ask the listeners. What do you guys think? You want to hear more about our boy MBS? You let <laughs> us know on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. We're at Dubious Pod on all of the above. Yes, guys. And please don't forget to follow us in your podcast app if you are not doing that already and become a patron to get our premium episodes. We are, well, just the two of us. We don't have an editing team, sound engineers, researchers, and all that stuff. So we work on this podcast in our very dwindling free time on nights and weekends. And your help really counts. So if you like us, please become a patron and please recommend us to your friends. 
So, Sandra, do we have book recommendations? Yes, one very good book, also available as an audiobook, which is what I do lately. I listen to books because all the research for the podcast is a bit much for my eyes. Neil, on the other hand, has robot eyes. Like, he can read for days and nothing happens. Yes, get LASIK, too. That's our other recommendation. It's wonderful. I have better than 2020 vision. Yes, get LASIK. It's great. I like my glasses. So this episode's book recommendation is MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman by Ben Hubbard. It is an exceptional book. Ben Hubbard is a really good journalist and he knows the geopolitics of the region well. He's currently Beirut bureau chief for the New York Times. And you'll get a good idea of how things work in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the book has a lot of detail about MBS's personal life. It's like really well researched, really well written. And look, there are many MBS books out there, some written by Western people who want to stay in the good graces of the Saudi royal family and would go as far as to suggest MBS is not really guilty for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So best to be in the know and pick a book written by an actual journalist who knows what he's talking about. So The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman by Ben Hubbard. Oh, and very important, we have no deals or incentives of any kind to recommend the books we do. We just recommend what we like. Well, that's it for this episode, I guess. Let us know if you like more MBS, people. Yes, and thank you all for listening. See you guys next time.